I have this friend, his name is Luke, and I see him when I go to the presbytery meetings, and he can, uh, he can read and understand and Greek, and he can read and understand Hebrew, and right now he's at a seminary in Quebec, so he's learning to become fluent in French. And people who can do the multiple language thing, and some of you can, you speak more than one language, to me it's astounding, because uh, my hands are full with English, and uh, it's amazing, and, and I've, I've heard that English is one of the hardest languages for people to learn, because we have all these rules, and then we keep on breaking them, and there's exceptions all over the place, we've got, there's words that... Uh, they sound exactly the same, but they're spelt differently, like two, two, and two, or there, there, and there. And then you have words that are spelt exactly the same, but they're pronounced differently, like attribute or attribute, you know, or um, alternate or alternate. And so that's hard for people to grasp, or, or bass, like the fish, and bass, like the instrument that you play. And, so I can't imagine what it would be like to, to learn our language. You have words that don't make any sense, like hamburger, there's no ham. Pineapple, there's no pine, there's no apple. What's happening there? They meet someone who, who uh, says they're a vegetarian, and the person learning English doesn't know what that means. So, oh, well, the root word is vegetable, so vegetarian eats vegetables. They're like, okay, got the concept. And then they meet someone who says they're a humanitarian, and what? <laughs> well, uh, and so once you've got to grapple with all of these, you know, idiosyncrasies of the English language, then they've got to deal with the metaphors that we have. And every culture has metaphors, you know, every culture. And so uh, imagine that same person is at work and they say, we're going to have a meeting at 2 p.m. All the staff are meeting in the conference room. Uh, we've got to address the elephant in the room. What kind of organization is this? This is incredible. There's elephants involved. Our text this morning is from John chapter 21. And in John chapter 21, Jesus deals with an elephant in the room. And we, of course, know that when you say there's an elephant in the room, you're saying there is this massive, unavoidable issue that everybody knows about. And in John 21, Jesus is dealing with elephant-sized betrayal. And we go to this text because after Easter and the Easter season, we've been looking at all of the texts where the resurrected Christ presents himself. We're looking at the risen Jesus all the way up until Ascension Sunday, and we're kind of exploring what it is that we learn about the grace of our Lord, and what does this resurrected Christ teach us? Well, one of the things that we see as we begin here in verse 9, as Jesus is on the beach setting the scene by a fire so he can deal with this elephant-sized betrayal, is that the way that he deals with it puts God's grace on display. John chapter 21, starting in verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and he hauled the net to shore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. Now this was the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they'd finished the breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. And Jesus said to Peter a second time, 
Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he'd said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you you know everything and you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. And this he said by showing what kind of death Peter was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And Peter turned and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the Lord's Supper. And Peter said, Lord, who is, who is that? Is he going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that the disciple was not to die. But Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But what he said was, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And now there are also many things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is God's word. Now, for those of you who are exploring Christian faith this morning, or perhaps you've been in church your whole life and you struggle to believe, I think there's some things that I want us to consider before we start to unpack this text. This is the third appearance of of many appearances that the resurrected Christ made And the resurrected Christ appeared for 40 days before his ascension. And the Apostle Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He talks about how Christ had appeared to the 12 and and had appeared even at one point to 500 people at one time. There was a, a mass sighting of the resurrected Jesus. So we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of people who had seen the resurrected Christ. And it's easy to look at a passage like this about a resurrected Jesus cooking breakfast on a beach... And be like, you know what, I'm, maybe this is a legend. Maybe it's poetry. Maybe we're supposed to take this figuratively. You know, after all, we're moderns and we're intelligent people. Do we believe the resurrected Christ was having a reconciliation fish fry? Or is this just poetry? And the answer is, no, it's not poetry. Because historical scholarship all attests that when you look at particular texts like this, they give you details. We talk about this a lot around the Easter season. Details like there was 153 fish. The boats were 100 yards from the shore. You know, uh, earlier, uh, before this point, Peter takes off his coat and, you know, puts his coat back on, jumps in the water. When you get those little details, that's not how you, that's not how you write legends, that's how you record history. This is what textual scholarship teaches us. For example, in Acts chapter 26, the Apostle Paul is meeting, talking about this resurrected Christ we just, we just read about, and he's meeting before two, uh, Two Roman figures. Uh, One of them is Marcus Julius Agrippa, and the other one is Portius Festus. And Paul appears before both of them, and this is what Paul says. Festus says, Paul, you're insane. You're talking about this resurrected Christ. You're insane. And see, even before I kind of exegete this text this morning, if you're considering faith and exploring it, or you've had doubts, you can look at texts like this and go, you're insane to believe this. Resurrected Jesus having a fish fry. It's insane. Here's what Paul said about the resurrection. He says, and I quote to Festus, he says, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. And then Paul points to Marcus Agrippus, and he says, 
Agrippa is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that the resurrection has not escaped his notice because the resurrection was not done in a corner. And then Paul looks at King Agrippa and he says, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And King Agrippa says to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, short time or long, I pray, that God, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today become believers in Christ as I am, except for these chains. All these historical accounts and your history books have these figures of Festus and Agrippa written, uh, you know, in them, because this is something that took place in, in our history. And it's important that we consider all this, because before we unpack this text of the resurrected Jesus cooking fish on the beach, we've got to settle into the fact that this is something that happened, and it's got profound and life-changing significance for you and for, uh, for, you and for me. So let's look at it. In verse 9, you've got this charcoal fire. And as I mentioned last week, there's only two places the charcoal fire in the New Testament is mentioned. The first is at Christ's crucifixion, when Peter denies Jesus, and the second charcoal fire is here, where Jesus is about to restore Peter. And um, at the very first fire, you know, Peter says, I don't belong to him. And at this fire, Jesus is saying, come, sit, you belong to me. The first fire, Peter's saying, I don't know the man. This fire, Jesus says, come, sit, eat. I know you, Peter. This tremendous reconciliation that's going on. It's amazing. And the only reason, of course, that there's any fish there is because Jesus miraculously filled those nets. As you remember that we talked about this last week. In the same way that Christ miraculously filled those nets, he miraculously fills his church. He filled the nets by his power. He fills the church by his power. Not just numerically filling, but healing and filling us richly. Restoring us deeply. We live from that reality because we know that in the end he's going to eternally raise us. Eternally. And so what Peter thought was going to be a routine night of hard work ended up being this restorative morning and breakfast full of grace. And Jesus sets the scene with Peter. He sets the scene with a meal. Right? Bring some fish, Peter. He sets the scene for a meal to meet Peter's failure with forgiveness. And each week... Jesus sets the scene with a meal to meet all of our failure with forgiveness. And in fact, Lamentations chapter 3 teaches us that every single day, God sets a table to meet our failure with forgiveness. As Lamentations 3 says, the steadfast of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. It is new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. We've got this reconciling God constantly moving towards us, which is tremendous. Verse 15 Jesus says to Peter, do you love me more than these? And he's talking about the other disciples. Do you love me more than these guys? It's a great question because earlier, Peter was very, you know, before the crucifixion, Peter was pretty bold to say, they're all going to leave you, but I won't. They're all going to fail, but I won't. I'm better than all of them. And of course, Peter lets himself down. He lets Jesus down. He lets everybody else down. And maybe you've known Christians like that. Maybe you've been a Christian like that. Well, they might not all get the gospel, but I really get it. They may not understand grace, but boy, I sure do. They may all not be faithful, but I sure am. Those other churches are crazy, but this one has it all together. Our little movement in this 2,000 years of church history, we've definitely banging on all cylinders. Those guys are all a, tr- all a mess, but this one has it. I mean, this is just so human. What's going on? So Jesus goes, hey, do you love me more than all these? He's bringing Peter back so he can do a deep, deep restoration, you know. And we all got to, as Christians, like Peter, we got to get over ourselves. There is a hero in the Christian faith, but it's not us. 
And at the first fire, Peter put himself first and he denied Jesus to save his life. But at this fire, Jesus forgives and restores so deeply that Peter goes on to preach Jesus even to the cost of his life. And I want you to notice that all of this restoration is wrapped in deep friendship, really deep friendship. This is significant because it's unique to the Christian faith. Our God is creator and king and friend. And I mentioned this last week, it bears repeating again, because the context of this whole restoration is this deep friendship and love, which is good news for you, that your creator and king is your friend. When, when, Peter, when Jesus calls out in verse 5, you'd have to look earlier, but when he calls out and he says, friends, some of your Bibles say friends, other Bibles say children, both translations are true, because what's interesting is Jesus uses this intimate slang when he yells out. That's what Greek translators tell us, is he yells out, the, the Greek word that John wrote down was paideia, and paideia is where we get our English word pediatrician, okay? If he was just saying friends, like in a, you know, then the Greek word would have actually been Philadelphos, which is where we get Philadelphia, brotherly love, right? But, G, but that's not what the text says. It doesn't say, Philadelphos, did you catch any fish? He says, Paideia. So it's like this intimate, you know, here's the best way to explain this. You know when you see a little kid and they're so cute, you say things. You like that. You say things that don't make sense. You're like, oh, they're so cute. I want to eat them. I just want to eat them. Now, again, getting back to the English language being full of metaphors, nobody says, hide the children. Because we all know what that means. Somebody sees a little kid, they go, oh my goodness, they're so cute, I just want to bite their face. The mother's like, no, that's not what happens, because we know what it means. It's like this, you can't, you can't, you, you can't find intimate enough language to be like, I just, my love is so deep. And so that's, that's the paideia when Jesus yells out, if you count any fish, I just love you guys so much, you're all miserable failures, you all ran away, but i got to restore you guys. That's why your Bible, some says children, some says friends, because it's both. I just love you guys so much, I just want to kiss your face. That's what's happening. That's, That's the context for this restoration. This is the creator and king, who's also friend of sinners, which is good news, because that's all of us, restored by his great grace, and now called righteous, right? And so, this is what's going on, wrapped in this great friendship, tremendous friendship. Now, this is important to just think about how Jesus is a friend to sinners because, like Peter, we let him go. We let, we let Jesus go, but he never lets us go. Right? We turn away, just like Peter turned away, but Jesus never turns away, right? We fail like Peter failed. Maybe you're in here this morning and you know, you're tempted to cross your arms right now and be like, well, I'm not so sure about that. I've never, I've never outright verbally denied Christ. No, I believe you. You may not denied Christ, but you've dethroned Christ. You've dethroned him all the time. I dethrone him all the time. And by dethroning, I mean, I mean, just let's think about this. How often do we Christians, we stop trusting and we start worrying and we're living as if our life is not in the hands of God, but it's in the hands of the professor, it's in the hands of the economy, it's in the hands of, of, of our boss. We live our life like our, hand, our life is in the hands of something else. I mean, that's dethroning Christ, to leave that place of trust and to enter into that place of worry, Right? 
Our life is in the hands of our social group or, or something else, right? We've done this. We've all taken Christ off the throne and put something else on there. We've wandered from God looking for something. You know, God will give us our identity and tell us who we are, but we look to this other thing. We want it to give us our identity and tell us who we are because the hole in our hearts are stupid deep and we just keep doing it and doing it. We do it. We come in here every Sunday needing Jesus to set the meal so there can be some forgiveness for our failure. I mean, this is just, we do, we do this. And the reason why this is so significant to consider is because Jesus, in undeserved, scandalous grace, he addresses the elephant-sized idolatry and failure in Peter, and he addresses the elephant-sized idolatry and failure in all of us with undeserved grace every time. The friend of sinners never turns away. Jesus, the friend who never fails, right? He calls you like he calls Peter so he can restore you again. And forgive you again. And continue his rich renewal in your heart and in your mind again. And quiet the anxiety that rose in you from Monday to Saturday because you chased some mini-Messiah. And he, he calls you to restore you again and quiet your heart again. This is the great grace of the, of the, of the friend of sinners. This Jesus. Our God has more grace than we have sin. It's amazing. So, so Jesus takes Peter for a walk. They don't stay by the fire. They go for a walk. We know that because you look at verse 20 and Peter looks back. He sees John. They're walking. Okay? So how many of you have ever been in a meeting when somebody is in trouble and, and if they get up and they go to have like a separate meeting, it's like everybody's ears are like, oh man, I wonder what's being said. All the disciples know what happened and that, Jesus, you know, that Peter denied Jesus three times and Jesus gets up and is like, hey, let's go for a little walk here. I'm going to embarrass you in front of everybody. Let me restore you over here. And so, of course, John follows because he's writing this gospel. And so, Peter ta- uh, sorry, Jesus takes Peter for a walk. And I want you to notice what happens is, is Jesus calls Peter by his old name. He calls him Simon three times. And he's re- G- Peter denied him three times. And Jesus is wanting to restore him. He's resetting the stage three times. He calls him Simon. The word Peter in the Greek is Petros, which means rock. And Jesus gave him that name when Peter confessed Christ and so now he's calling him Simon, Simon, Simon to remind him of those times when he take him right back emotionally to where he denied Christ. And so he does this and because he's doing a deep healing, we don't have a, a duct tape, quick fix savior. Right? What we've got here is we've got a deep work. He's taking his time. He cares about you. He's not give, he doesn't give up on you. Right? He, he's with you till the end of the line. That's what we see in Jesus here. And, you know, repentance and restoration, it can be a painful process. It's a liberating process, but it's also a painful process. But you know what? When God restores you, you wouldn't have it any other way. You wouldn't have the deep work any other way. And this is what Jesus is doing, a really deep work here. This incredible otherworldly grace. I want you to notice something else about this. I want you to think about how hard, how, how hard you and I struggle with forgiveness and restoration even with people who come asking for it. The, the one who failed isn't seeking restoration. Jesus is seeking the restoration. The one who failed isn't initiating any of this. Jesus is initiating all of this. Peter didn't say, you know what, while you're here, can we talk? Can I just, can we go for a while? Peter's not initiating anything. Jesus is doing, do you see the power of his, not just his saving grace, but his restoring grace, constantly moving towards us. What's the one thing that, as Christians, the first thing we want to do when we have a lousy week and we feel as though, you know, God is a thousand miles away, 
what's the first temptation? It's to, co- it's to not come to church, to not come and gather, right? The temptation is, ugh, I blew it, I should stay away. What, does, what is our God's response to this? By his great grace to constantly move towards us, even in our failure. It's tremendous. Now think about this. The only reason you and I are here is because of his, his scandalous chasing grace. That's the only reason that we're here this morning. And the good news for you when you're wavering, and the good news for your children who are wandering, is that because of his covenant love for you, his covenant love for them, because of his covenant sign of baptism for you, covenant sign of baptism for your children, is that his spirit continually, relentlessly moves towards us to draw us back. And so when Jesus is restoring Peter, he asks him to do something. Three times in verse 15, feed my lambs. Verse 16, tend my sheep. Verse 17, feed my sheep. What's Jesus doing? Why in the middle of restoration is he asking him to do this? Because he's not only restoring Peter, he's reinstating him. He's a, the Greek word for tend my sheep is poimenos, which is to shepherd, which is to pastor. It's the same verb the New Testament uses for pastoring. Yeah, I know you're a failure. I'm also, you're in charge. Wait, what? Yeah, I need failures in charge because there's only failures. Right? This is what's going on. He's restoring him. He's recommissioning him. The one who failed to bear witness to Jesus is called to lead the church to Jesus and bear witness to Jesus. And maybe you're here this morning and you feel like for one reason or another, you know, you're disqualified from being a minister of the gospel. There is nothing you have ever done that puts you beyond the restoring, reinstating love and grace of Jesus. There is nothing your failure, whatever it is, does not disqualify you from sharing the gospel of God's saving grace. Your failure, whatever it is, simply points to the fact that everyone without exception needs God's grace, and no one without exception is beyond the reach of God's grace. I want you to notice how the same grace that brings restoration to Peter, it actually empowers reorientation in Peter. He's restoring him and he's reorienting him. And I want you to notice both because there's a restoration that God is doing in you by his grace and there's a reorientation that he's doing in you by his grace. It's true true of all of us. It's what what his saving grace does, right? Peter is being healed from his inward curved posture of protecting and hiding and he's being empowered to live with an outward facing posture of ministering and feeding. Now what kind of a community would be formed? If the one leading it was a miserable failure saved by grace, what kind of a community does that form? A community of compassion, not comparison. Because you know the only reason you're in it is by grace. And therefore, we can't relate to anybody in this room with superiority. We can't relate to anybody outside this room with superiority. Because we know the only reason we're in this room is because of his gracious generosity. This is what grace does in us. Restores and it reorients. G.K. Chesterton said this. He said, you know, by far the greatest argument against Christianity is Christians. And maybe you're here this morning and you're not struggling to believe in the resurrection. And you're not struggling to believe in Jesus Christ. You're struggling to believe in the church. 
But what do you think Jesus is doing in this whole thing here? He's founding for a very specific purpose, instituting, if you will, his church. By calling Peter to do this pastoral work. I want you to notice, notice what's going on here. It's very attractive spiritually in our climate to kind of just be individualistic about our faith. And of course, that's not what Jesus is doing because feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. That's pastoring language. That's community language. That's family language. That's what Jesus is actually doing. And without question, there are abuses and failures in the church. Without question, sin in the church. Without question, breakdown, disillusionment. Some of you have a hard time believing in what Jesus was actually preparing Peter to do because you're like I'm I have such a backdrop of disappointment and pain and hurt and 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 uh you know disillusionment about the church that I just give me my 45 minutes on a Sunday morning and that is all I want with this whole thing with this program I just give me the preacher 30 minutes or less please and that is it but I want you to notice what's going on You see, everything that Jesus is instituting is to feed us. And everything that man institutes drains and abuses us. You see, Jesus didn't make a mistake. Jesus instituting his church wasn't wrong. The frail sinners responsible for your hurt and your pain and your disillusionment, they were wrong. I want you to look at this text. I want you to notice what Jesus is doing. Peter, you failed and you're in charge, which means every pastor is a spiritual failure. Every single pastor is a spiritual failure when God puts them in charge. And that means we should limp into the pulpits to humbly serve because I'm not the head of the church. Jesus is. I'm one of you. I'm a sheep like you. We're sheep. You're a sheep. I'm a sheep. And I'm called to stand here. Luther got it right in in the Reformation when he said it this way. He said, we preachers, we are beggars. This is true. But we're beggars who found bread. And we're telling all the other beggars where the bread is. That's what Jesus is doing with Peter here. See, when you say institution, institution by definition is you found something for a purpose. That's an institution. Okay? Jesus instituted things. He founded things for a purpose. And the purpose was to feed and to serve. Right? Matthew 26 institutes the Lord's table. Matthew 28 institutes baptism. Right? Acts chapter 6, the institution of deacons. You know, Acts 14, the institution of elders. Ephesians chapter 4, the institution of pastors and, and teachers and evangelists and prophets. and to, to, to be doing the work of the ministry. He institutes these things. But all of them are, are instituted for the purpose of serving, pointing to Jesus, preaching Jesus, calling to the restorative grace of Jesus. And maybe you're listening to all this and you're saying, you know, that's really nice, but I'm not a pastor. Peter was called to be a pastor. You know, I'm standing up here called to be a pastor. So you, why did I come this Sunday morning? I could have taken the Sunday off because I'm not called to be a pastor. Now, hold on a second. Wait a minute. What do you think my job is exactly? Is my job to do the work of the ministry? Or is my job to train all of the sheep to revel and marvel in the grace of Christ so that together we all do the work of the ministry? You see, we're all ministers. We're all pilgrims on the way. We're all those who have failed like Peter, but then we were restored and reinstated like Peter so that we can go and share the hope that we're enjoying in Christ. And this is what it is. We do this from rest and renewal. We all go out 
right? So that others can be fed just as we've been fed by God's rescuing and renewing grace. And then in verse 18, Jesus says something and it makes you swallow hard because the first time you hear it, you're like, this is a terrible, awful prophecy. Jesus says to Peter, you know, there was a time in your life when you got up in the morning and you dressed yourself and you went wherever you want, but a day is coming when you're going to stretch your arms out and people are going to dress you and take you where you don't want to go. And he's prophesying Peter's death. What in the world is going on here? See, the first time this strikes your ear, you're like, this is awful. What Jesus is saying is, the healing I am doing in you is so uh, deep that you, the one who denied me, you're going to stretch out your arms and die for me. That's how deep this healing is going to go. The healing that I do is permanent. Jesus Christ has you in his grasp and in his grip. When, when Jesus, prophes- he's prophesying Peter is going to be crucified because the one that failed him isn't going to fail him again in, that, in a denial sense, right? It's, it's actually astounding. And you've got to consider the source. This is the risen Christ. Remember that? So you see, if there, if there wasn't a risen Christ, if there was no life after death, this would just be a, ter- a terrible, horrifying prophecy. Hey, Peter, I got some... <clears throat> bad news on where this is all headed and you're going to be crucified spoiler alert the end no consider the source jesus is talking about death but he's already defeated death so what he's what he so that's why he follows it up with follow me you don't need to worry about this i mean the, the the death you're going to die isn't even final death has no sting anymore you don't have work you don't have to fear it worry about it Look at what's going on. It's, it's so profound. right? Follow me and death won't hold you because death isn't final. We're called to share that message. Live with the joy and the comfort that comes from that message. Not to be able to you know, afraid to give our life for that message. Right? Here in southern Ontario, you're probably not risking physical death for sharing that message. But you're going to risk social death for sharing it. Don't worry about your social death. Be gracious and loving and serving and wise and humble in the way that you you share, but don't be afraid about that. Look at where this is going. He's like Jesus, Jesus is saying to Peter, united to me by grace and faith, this life isn't all there is anyways, and that's the message. So then when you get to verse 19, and I love this, this is hilarious, loaded with humor. When When you get to verse 19, Jesus says, Eyes front, follow me. What does Peter do? He turns around. Hey, what about that guy? This is the first thing that he does. Follow me, Peter. What's John? Well, what about John? Is he gonna, you just told me I'm going to die. Is he going to die? I mean, what, what's the story in his life? Immediately. I love, I love the gritty honesty of the Bible. <laughs> it's hilarious. It's like John is writing all this down, following He's writing it down. It's like Peter's distracted. Follow me, Peter. Don't worry about anything. John, what did you write? What did, I just want to see. I just want to see what you wrote. How did you write? What about this guy? Is he going to die too? That's what's going on here. It's astounding. And so then in verse 22, Jesus kind of face palms and he repeats himself. Jesus is like, Peter, stay in your lane. I'm only telling you your story. Whether this guy lives, and notice what the disciples do. Jesus goes, whether this guy lives or dies, it's none of your business. And then they all go, hey, Jesus said he's not going to die. And then John's like, he didn't actually say that, but that's, that's how Christians like to hear things. Whatever. It's tied up in a big red bow. It's all going to be fine. Well, it is going to be fine, but not in the way that you think it's going to be fine. And so, 
Jesus is like, don't spend any energy sitting in judgment over what I'm doing in him, Peter. Just love him and follow me. Don't spend any time sitting in judgment over what I'm doing in any other Christian, KW Redeemer. Just follow me. This gritty honesty, it's, it's, it's profound. You know, and what we see there with Peter is, you know, he's justified in a one-time act of grace by Christ, but he's, continu- he's not totally sanctified. And for those of you exploring faith, justified means you stand before God and your verdict is, I'm not guilty. And that's a one-time act. It's done. Sanctification is a lifelong process, and it's, and it's done in Christ, but continually being done. So you see, that's why if you meet somebody, for those of you, again, exploring the faith, you meet a Christian that seems nothing like Christ, and I mean, it can mean one of two things. The first thing is, if somebody's name-dropping Christ, but they don't worship Christ, they have no idea, no desire to live to the glory of Christ, they have no, no desire for the imitation of Christ, and there's no evidence that they care, care about Christ, then they're just name-dropping Christ. They're not a Christian. That's what it means. Right? Your great life doesn't save you, but, but living to the glory of Jesus is the evidence of the one that's sitting in his grace. So it could mean that. But the other thing it could mean is that they're like Peter. They are saved. And they're just fumbling all over. They're fumbling all over themselves on the way. They're like, they're like Jesus being, or I'm sorry, they're like Peter, you know, being restored. And we'll close the text with this. John self-identifies as the author in verse 24 and 25, and he concludes his gospel in a striking way. He says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who's written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. This is John. And now there were so many things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written, I suppose, that the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. This is sending us a strong message that it's not over. That, 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 That even though he's ending his gospel... There is no end to the power and the restorative work of the gospel, of what Jesus continues to do by his, by his spirit through the gospel. This is not the end of Jesus' ministry. It's the beginning of his heavenly ministry. And church, his goodness towards you, it knows no horizon. His grace towards you, it knows no bounds. And united to Christ by grace and faith, your life will know no end. Amen.